I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently, if it could drink of new and cool ruins, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. From Richard Wright's Black Boy. The book is The Warmth of Other Suns. You're listening to part two. This is Lit Society. Let's Let's get lit! And this is Kari. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Yes. So, Kari. Yeah. How was your week? It was good. You know, um, I, I'm not on lockdown yet. I know a lot of, <laughs> but it's weird because I'm looking at my phone at work and I'm just watching my life be canceled. <laughs> One event after yeah, another. Yeah. Will there even be a summer? But um, surely this will be over before then, right? I really hope so. Uh, we have a friend coming in from the UK. We do. This um, fall, well, I think it's still summer. So hopefully, because yeah, if, if that ban is official, weren't they talking about? Yeah. So the UK everybody? and Ireland, right. Mm-hmm. Um, this week, it's a no go into the US. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. What about you? How you been? Oh, I've been pretty good um, at work. We're kind of planning to just be ready just in case we need to I be love that from home. yeah we don't have to freak out right uh we don't have to be overconfident either we can have a plan yeah. I love that do you have yeah. a personal plan of what you would do if you're stuck in the house for three weeks I mean I feel like it would be the best time of my life I mean I, I ooh, is this wrong to say I would really look forward to I it would look forward I already got to my it. Netflix queue lined up every minute of it the books I could read <laughs> oh right <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my to be read show. Yeah, I yeah. might could take out two of them. Look at you using some Goodreads lingo. Are, uh, you, are you? Have you been on Goodreads? I mean, not in real life. <laughs> okay. But other people say it. I like it. Yeah, because <laughs> I've had a, a bookshelf of that for years. Come on, I mean, we've been promising, threatening each other with Anna Karenina <laughs> <laughs> for decades. So. Absolutely. And the finishing of Hamilton. I'm going to insert that in there. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. You sure? You sure you never? No, nope, no, thank that? you. It's a musical now. You don't have to read the book. I still feel compelled, even when the stuff actually comes out. <laughs> and well, they actually, girl, if you got the time, <laughs> they're gonna make it into a, a movie, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna rethink this. Okay, it might be on your desk soon. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So each week, friends. We select a theme to discuss inspired by the book that we're reading. And Mm -hmm. we're continuing from last week's theme, which was why we left the South. So the part two version of this, I had an opportunity. Well, I decided I would reach out to my father's side of the family. Because you and I have never left the South. Right. Never left the the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of left the South, but it wasn't then. You went back as an adult Mm -hmm. or you went to the South as an adult and then came back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I had an an opportunity to speak with my aunt and I learned a little bit more, but not much. So because she doesn't really know. So what I learned is that my grandfather, who we call granddaddy, (laughs) granddaddy, he had like seven brothers and sisters, I believe. And he was the youngest 
um, and he was born and raised in Sylacauga, Alabama. Them names. Yeah, in July of 1923. And towards the end of his mother's life, um, she was living in Sylacauga. So that's why my aunt believes that's where he was born and raised. Okay. He quit school at uh, sixth grade and he joined the army. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Say Come it. again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, wait, how old are you in the sixth grade? I don't know if you can make that relationship because like in sixth grade today, you'd be like 11 years old. But here's something that I found was interesting. During World Oh, you can do these W words, girl. I believe in you. During WW2. Uh-uh, your ancestors did not migrate from the <laughs> South for you to be saying WW2. <laughs> I'm not. I can't do it. Do it. Do it. <sighs> During World War Two. That's what I'm talking about. Applause. <laughs> <laughs> Which was from 1939 to 45. The U.S. allowed um, men and women um, 18 years of age and older to join to enlist. However, they did allow 16 and 17 year olds. Um, to enlist with parental consent. Wow. Okay. And then there the are also, babies. yeah, those that lied about joining the military for whatever reason. And it's noted that there's a person, a boy as young as 12 that served in the military. So during the first world war, second, second. Okay. So he actually served four years in the war. Okay. And he was at uh, Fort McClellan in Alabama. And uh, I think it's in Aniston, maybe. Okay. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But he was, it was black? My father? No. The, my grandfather? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were still talking about the boy. <laughs> oh, no. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, so my grandfather, granddaddy, met Granny. That's my grandmother. <laughs> and... Um, Sometime in the mid to late forties, um, and he they met near Fort McKellen. So when he left the war, he came back and kind of was in this Fort McKellen. That's where he kind of stayed. And I understand that's where most of the black folks were that were in the war mm -hmm. were stationed there. And so they moved to Milwaukee in the mid forties, and that's like to get good work. Okay. Solid job. Work. Yeah. For more economic opportunity. Yep. Yeah. I guess there was an economic boom. And so people were making their way mm -hmm. that way. And so when he moved there, he started working for Alice Chalmer. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. It was a big machining company and he worked and retired there. He worked there for 30 years and retired from there. But during the time when he worked there, he also participated in the Korean war, which was from 50 to 53. Right. Um, I think he retired from Alice Chalmer in about 1975. So he really had like his whole life ahead of him yeah, <laughs> after that. Yeah, he would yeah. have been pretty young. Um, his parents owned a grocery store when they were living in Alabama and they were supposed to be pretty prominent mm -hmm. in that area. Um, I also learned a little bit about my granny. Her name was, her maiden name was Maddie Powell and she was born in May of 1923. She actually dropped out of school at the eighth in the eighth grade and she died in 1976, but she was born in Newton, Georgia on a reservation. 
Oh, okay. To where she lived until she was about the age. She of was Native 10. American. <clears throat> That's what I'm unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots That's of believe. Yeah. Um, she had seven brothers and sisters, and before, yeah, yeah, she had seven brothers and sisters, and after they moved off the reservation, they moved to Anniston, Alabama, and um, when they moved as a family, um, my granny and grand daddy moved to Milwaukee. She ended up working for um, affluent Jewish families in Fox Point. Mm-hmm. And so as I, housekeeper. Yep. Okay. As a nanny. Okay. As a okay. nanny. Um, I asked my aunt, if, did they return to Alabama? And she said they actually returned often. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of times a year, they would go at Easter and Christmas because that's when Alice Chalmers had two week shutdowns. Okay. And they may have even gone. They have family there. They three probably times. To see, yeah. yeah they had the big family. And so when I think about that in comparison to the people in the book, a lot of them didn't go back. Right. They just left and left it behind. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I feel like their situation. I don't know. It, I'm not going to say it wasn't a hardship, but it just seems like. I don't know. I don't know how to say it, but it didn't seem like it was difficult mm-hmm. for them. So that was um, interesting. I think in general, when I think of that time, I imagine they all leave, led hard lives mm-hmm. compared to the lives we live now. I mean, being involved in two wars, coming out, making yeah. a family right away, you know, working in a factory for over 35 years, they were made of tougher stuff. By all means, can mm-hmm. I assure you? So did you have an opportunity to learn anything else about your family's migration? So you'll remember that in our last episode, I called my mom and she was like, I don't know. The South was great or whatever. I played all day. I was six. (laughs) (laughs) So this time this week, I called my grandma and she gave me a little more information. She had a little more to say. Okay. All right. Let's get into it. Okay. Hello. Hey, Grandma. Hey. How you doing? Good, you. You know what? I come here and look at that number and say Chicago, I am something. I said, I don't know that number. Just turn around walk out. <laughs> yeah, <I> miss me. <laughs> so are you busy? No, go ahead. Well, I have this, like, podcast, um, which is like a radio show, but you hear it on the Internet. And we're uh-huh. reading we're reading a book called The Warmth of Other Suns and it's about when six million black people left the South and moved to the north northern states, mostly to uh-huh. get away from like Jim Crow. So I wanted to interview you um about your life growing up in the South and what it was like for you personally, uh, with your permission. And yeah, so if you don't mind me asking what what year were you born? <laughs> 1939. Oh, you ancient. That's beautiful. I, I am uh, 81, the 17th of March. Okay. I will be. Golden Brown Girl. <laughs> where were you born? Oh, Lord. Um, Do you remember where you're from? County. But you remember what state? Was it in Mississippi? Yeah. Okay. And how was life like for you growing up in the South? How was your school, first of all? Was it like a... Kindergarten, one room. We had one room. Yeah. 
And uh-huh. and then um did did you guys go to high school at that time? I didn't go to high school. Okay. My oldest sister went to high school. How old were you when you got married? I was eighteen. What did your parents do for work before you got married? When you were still living with them? We were sharecroppers. We you lived were. on a. Uh, and did you work with them as a child? Yeah. You yeah. Picked, you picked cotton with your parents. Yes. What was that, that like? That was my first job. Uh, they showed you off with a little flower sack. Wow. And how, how old were you? About two. <laughs> two or three. <laughs> two, they showed you out early on the, being a farmer. A two farmer or, child. You weren't two or three years old. Maybe like five, yeah. right? No. no. About two or three. Two or three they years old, They showed you out early with and you fill up that little sack, and then you give it to your mama or your daddy or whoever has it on your sack. Huh? I don't believe you. Two or three yeah. years old, you could barely walk. People uh, in the South, you walk fast. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't play a rush. You hot out there. So you learn how to walk fast, and then you learn how to pick cotton. And then how long yeah. did you work for with, with your parents, like till you were 18? Until I was married, I'm gonna tell you too. Mom raised us like she, we was in the army, and she was the yeah colonel. Yeah, all she knew how to do was go do this, go do that. Right. And you better do this. If you don't do it again, you got to go back and do it again. Oh boy, mom was something else. Mm-hmm. I don't think she knew the meaning of the word love. Mm-hmm. So she was the first generation in her family out of slavery. Do you think that might have made her a little harder? Well, I'm gonna tell you right now, she sure could think of herself more than she could anybody else. Mm. It was hard being under mom. What about Sometimes I wish I had never been born. What about your dad? Dad, it was easy going because okay. he used to tell her, and she she wouldn't pay him no attention. Okay. When you were growing up and you guys were sharecropping, you at least had enough to get by. You don't remember going hungry or anything like that. Oh yeah, we used to go to bed hungry. Because mm. we didn't have nothing in the kitchen to cook. We used to eat some awful mess just to have something in our stomach. Some old cornbread and some gravy. When it got cold, you could cut it like it's cake. Mm-hmm. And guess what? You didn't have no meat in it. You just have some grease and put some flour in a skillet and pour some water in it mm-hmm. or some milk. Yeah, we weren't hungry. We used to just eat corn. Roshaneers, as long as I could eat Roshaneers, and I was able to go get it, we eat Roshaneers. But when it got hard, we'd eat the hard corn. And so what did you do for fun as a single woman before you got married? Whenever I could, I'd go fishing. And we on the weekends, uh, we would go to church. Mm-hmm. And sometimes Daddy would take us to different church to have singing. Mm-hmm. And how did men and women, black or white, treat you when, once you came of age? I mind my own business. I didn't go around saying yes and no, sir, because I wouldn't. I didn't believe in it, so I wouldn't talk to them. So you just would avoid white people? No, I didn't. I didn't do that. I just wouldn't talk to them. But they did want you to say yes, ma'am, no, sir, and all that junk. Yeah. So yeah. if I didn't want to say it, I didn't talk to them. Okay. Daddy and Mama said it. Yeah. Were you the youngest? Uh, were you the youngest? No. How many kids? Uh, how many kids were in your house? Eight. Okay. The third. I was the third child. Third. Okay. I remember a story about you causing trouble in school and just leaving. Is that true? Did that happen? I told you no. I didn't play. <laughs> you didn't play. And I know. I knew what I was going to do if you told me to do something because I didn't want to play a game. So what if happened? Stay, what happened at school go, that made you leave that one day? Play a uh, chicken fly. 
Who wants to sit up in school and play chicken fly? You didn't go I to school to, for I, would, that. I didn't do that. She said, go sit down in the hole. I told my sisters, but I said, I'm going home. I, w- I went home. <laughs> was, home <laughs> was home far from school? No. Okay, so you, and how old were you, do you think? Play, uh, 13 or 14. So, so you're, no, that is too old to be at school playing games. So they wanted just yeah. to waste your time. Yeah. So you was a pistol is what you're trying to say. You didn't take any mess and you didn't. No, try I didn't. To, yeah. From anybody. I tried to mind my own business. Yeah. And if you push me, I'll let you know you ain't pushing me. Right. I didn't care who you were. I'm like this. If yeah. I don't push you, don't push me. Right. So uh-huh. what made you want to get married? I like. I love my husband. I told mom, I said, I'm going to marry him. He was coming up there to see me. So he was cute. And she, <laughs> yeah, I thought he was handsome. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to marry him. When he asked me, I said, yes. And how old was grandpa when you got married? Oh, he's, it was 10, 10 years between me and him. Okay, so when you were 18, my grandfather was 28, and he was coming to see about you, and you thought he was cute. <laughs> yeah, he was handsome. <laughs> How was your wedding? Oh, I didn't have no wedding. We went up there to Ashland to the courthouse and got married. And then what was your home like? Where did you go after the courthouse? I went to his grandmother's house. Okay. Oh, yeah, because Mama was telling me Grandma was messy. <laughs> Great Grandma. Oh, yeah, she was very messy. But guess what? <laughs> she treated me good. Yeah. She treated me like I was her child. Wow. And what made you leave her house? Because if I, I always believe if a person getting married, they should have their own house. Yeah. So we moved it out into our own shack. (laughs) 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 What was your first house like? (laughs) A shack. (laughs) The front room was good. Yeah. But in the kitchen was okay. But the room from there, it was never, it was two more rooms. It never was finished. Okay. So it was four rooms and only two were finished. Did it, uh-huh. And then you had, your, and then you had your little daughter. Um, well, having kids Make, was hard back then, right? Because you're doing a lot of physical work, and a lot of women lost their their babies before they were born. Yeah, I lost four sons there. Yeah, I'm the mother of twelve children. Right. Mm-hmm. But you have eight that were that made it. Mm-hmm. If all of my boys had a living, I'd had nine sons and three daughters. Ooh. Uh huh. Wow. Okay. So, how, when you when you had um my mom, what made you want to move to the north? You know, I was just used to the south. But mom gave me enough money. My mom told me she was they, they was leaving there. Yeah. And she gave me enough money to get me a ticket to Illinois. So your mom and I used your mom was uh-huh. li- your mom was living in Evanston already. No, she was telling me that she was going to come to, she was, they was leaving the South. Okay. Did she ever leave? And so she told, she gave me the money. I came to Illinois and then shortly after they came. Okay. They did come. So you were all uh-huh. in Evanston. Uh-huh. What made you move to Milwaukee? Because we, then we had, a, our family was getting larger. Okay. And we needed our own home. We couldn't, we couldn't afford those homes in Illinois. Okay. It was too high. So we come to Milwaukee, we could find us a home. Mm-hmm. And what did you do for work when you moved north? 
Oh, I was it worked in housekeeping. What did he do? Uh, he started out as a carpenter, and then uh, in Illinois, he worked as a bookbinder. You know, I remember him playing the piano. He never had piano lessons. How did he learn how to play those instruments? He played by sound. He did, yeah. And he could play anything. Yeah. Harp, anything he could get his hands on, he could play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember him being really naturally gifted that way. Yeah, all Mama remember was playing and her pet pig and her pet dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was little. She was little. <laughs> And she and she'd go to fishing with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was a paradise to her. She was just playing all day long while y'all was working. Yeah, she didn't do no work. <laughs> she don't know about no cop picking no cotton. No. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> so I'm thankful that you shared this with me. We'll put it on the show and I'll come over and show you how to listen to it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I love you, Grandma, and I'll talk to you later. I love you, too, but take care of yourself and be careful. Okay, I will. Okay, now you be careful now. Okay, I will. Okay. Okay, talk to you later. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. So that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. That was really interesting. So did she um, talk about it all, um, the the difficulties of dealing with the, what do you call them? The handler? The planter? The planter. Yeah, she uh, mentioned that her family kind of were in their cocoon. They didn't have to interact with their planter oh, very yeah. often uh-huh. from what she remembers. So they didn't have a big problem with him specifically. Okay. But what the work that? paid you next to nothing. And even while in the South, my grandpa abandons sharecropping for I think factory work before mm-hmm. they even moved north. Oh really? Yeah because so the they pay could was still so... get the factory jobs there. He did yeah okay. for a time I don't know if the pay was that much better yeah then um, for him but it was you know it was something more than what they were getting with sharecropping yeah pretty cool that I really love hearing these stories. Why don't we take a quick break before we jump into the part two. Okay alright sounds good mm-hmm. for part two yes all right let's get started with this deep dive into warmth of other suns okay and if you guys if you readers listening are looking for some context about the author please refer to part one where we give you some background on Isabel Wilkerson she's a pretty interesting lady yeah pretty and interesting and then we also um set up the synopsis for you and there's a little American history lesson there too if you're interested Which is in great. that and valuable information. But this is part two of The Warmth of Other Suns, our final part by the Lit Society podcast. Ida Mae Gladney, George Swanson Starling, Dr. Bob Pershing Foster. You remember that these are the three people whose lives we were following. Right. We started with Ida last week. This week, we're going we're gonna to start with Pershing. Dr. We're going to start with, I'm going to call him Dr. Foster okay. this episode. He is the Pershing from last episode. Dr. Foster, 
Los Angeles, April 1953. In our last reading, he was sitting with his family in Louisiana and telling them, I don't know how y'all can stay in this town with Jim Crow on your neck. I'm leaving. Right. And he made a drive solo without his wife and children to California to set it up for them before bringing them into the West. Right. That drive, he got to the point of deliriousness. Yeah. With his exhaustion. Because having entered the North and believing himself to be free here, no hotel would admit him. One um, hotel owner, he explained the situation to the hotel owner's wife, telling her, listen, I'm driving all the way from here. If I don't sleep soon, I'm, I'm at this point a risk to others. I am delirious. Yeah. I just need to lay down and I can't pull over on the side of the road because I'll get arrested. And she looked at him, went and talked to her husband. Her husband came out and said, listen, we're from the North. We don't believe in segregation. However, the hotels around us will report us or harass us if we take in a colored man. We're sorry. There's nothing we can do for you. Um, That is a heartbreaking story. Yeah. Heartbreaking. But eventually Pershing, Dr. Foster, did make his way to Los Angeles. Um, A little note, two blacks were among the 40 or so men who founded L.A. The caste system in California was arbitrary and senseless. So there's no Jim Crow, but, you know, white people still don't like black people. So some um, hotels may not give you a room. Some restaurants might let you just sit there and never serve you. And you never really knew where you stood. So it's this awkward position where at least in the South, you knew it was Jim Crow, oh, but you yeah. get to the North and Jim Crow is illegal, but right. people still want to have their own like caste caste system. So you never know what you're supposed to do in any given environment. Um, still, Dr. Foster loved the too muchness of it all. Yeah. Now, remember, he he originally didn't want to be a doctor. He wanted to go to Hollywood and yes. like be a star. He wanted to be he a star. He pictured himself in the rap pack, uh-huh. you know. But things were expected of him. And he actually did love being a doctor now that he was one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Get into his story. (laughs) But when he got into this big showing off environment, he was right at home. At, do you hear me? (laughs) This man was at home. (laughs) The lawns were overly manicured. The lights were bright. He looked for an old professor from Morehouse, Dr. Beck. I really love Dr. Beck. Yeah. Um, Beck's father had died of tuberculosis And no white doctor would see him. So Dr. Beck became the doctor that he was to ensure that no colored man was going to die on his watch if he could help it. White people called him uppity. And I mean, they even beat him one day. There was a story about how he suffered physical abuse while practicing as a doctor. When he moved to California, um, the palm tree in front of his mansion was set on fire. He went to court. And sued the neighborhood. (laughs) So the neighborhoods would have covenants in the North where they all agreed never to let in a black person. If a white person sold their home to a black person, um, the black person would then face the assault from his neighbors. Neighbors, And it was common, actually, for white people to break this covenant because you could get more money selling to a black person who can't find a home anywhere else. So if you come across a you know, upper class black person who has the money. Why would you not sell to them? You going to leave the neighborhood anyway. Exactly. You don't care. <laughs> you know, get that money. <laughs> Make get this it. neighborhood black. Cause I'm going to the other side of town. <laughs> money, please buy. <laughs> so that's what would happen. Dr. Beck bought this mansion from a white family. 
his um, palm tree was set on fire and he sued the neighborhood for their covenant um, about their covenant. And um, he won. Yep. The white families around him were out in a matter of months. They sold their homes. They packed their families into their cars and left. Dr. Beck meant well and promised um, he refer patients to Dr. Foster when uh, Pershing, Dr. Foster arrived. We should also say that Pershing, think Persian, a country name. And so now he goes by Dr. Bob Foster. He dropped that. He was like, I'm not, I'm leaving that. I'm leaving that with Jim Crow. I'm no longer Pershing. I'm Bob. I'm putting it behind me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even though Dr. Beck uh, was, promised to refer clients to Dr. Foster. Bob knew that he needed his own practice. And in the back of his mind, he's thinking, well, I believe Oakland to be the promised land for me or the, the land where I should make my home and plant my roots. So he went to Oakland. And when he got there, the black neighborhood looked too much like the land he was running from. He was not trying to hear that. It looked just like the South. (laughs) And he returned to LA and began living for the first time in his life. Um, 1953, Los Angeles, he had a dollar 50 in his pocket. Um, it had to be enough to buy equality. He lived in the guest room of Dr. Beck's home who saw, who treated him like a son. Yeah. He was kind to him. Yeah. Him and his wife Mm -hmm. who had like this, uh, Doris Day. What's the lady name? It was Doris Day. Yeah. Basically, so. she was fine. Yeah. She didn't know how to cook, clean or do nothing because she was fine. She, <laughs> she never had to. She right. She, didn't she was have a beautiful to. black woman from a upper class family who married a very rich man. And she didn't know how to work, but she knew the social life and she could throw a party and pick your colors. Did they say Lena Hornish? There, there we, go. we go. She had a mm-hmm. Lena Hornish beauty. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So she mm-hmm. was gorgeous. Um. He, uh, Dr. Bob Foster began to live off the patients that Dr. Beck would throw his way. It was outside of Jim Crow South and Dr. Foster had first experienced discrimination by his own kind. Let me explain. Um, With more options available in the North, a lot of Northern Black people wanted the best. And to them, that seemed to be the widest. To make do, to make a life, Dr. Bob Foster was taking whatever Dr. Beck could give him, but he was also making house calls for the nation, one of the nation's only black health insurance companies. He would make a house call um, and collect samples. This is not something a surgeon would reduce right. himself to, but it's what he had to do to make money. He went to one home and as the, a black doctor. Yeah, yeah, he he went and he was visiting black families. So he yeah. went to one home. And the husband allowed him to examine him and say, come on, baby, it's time for your examination. And the woman said, I told you I'm not going to let no nigga doctor examine me. Dr. Bob Foster was flabbergasted. This type of alarming discrimination hurt many black businesses in the North. So interesting because these are things we kind of see today. Yeah, a little bit like crab in the barrel syndrome. Like I want what's the absolute best because now I have the ability to get it and the best has always been white. So I want to put myself, I don't want to go back to wherever I came from. I want to be better than that. And better is white. Yep. Even in, in his old classmates from back home who had moved to California, he wasn't seen as the doctor. So there was a large population of people from Monroe, Louisiana, where he was from. And they saw him as the foster boy. Yeah. I ain't going to go there and be, putting my legs in stirrups for the foster boy. (laughs) 
also, they held long grudges. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> These people was petty. Can with I hear tea it? and coffee. Absolutely. Absolutely. Petty cakes. They were all of the petties. <laughs> I mean, because he was like, anything that they remembered, because they had some long memories, mm-hmm. they would... Remember that his parents were in education. Yes. So if his dad ever punished them or his mom gave them detention, they wouldn't go visit him in their adult lives (laughs) for for, uh, medical care. They wouldn't do it. If they had, he would have the biggest practice in the world. That's how many people from Monroe had made the trip to uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. So amazing. The thing I love about Dr. Bob uh, Pershing Foster is his resilience. Once he saw a door close, he drill a hole in the wall to make another door. So he was determined. Yeah. Yeah. He thought, I'm going to just really be charismatic and get the clients of other people, um, get clients from elsewhere, like from Texas and everywhere else, basically, but Monroe, Louisiana. Yeah. (laughs) Because he was a great doctor. I'm going to stand out. Mm -hmm. I'm going to dress and stand out. And have this personality. And then people from Monroe will regret that they ever. He Absolutely. he did have a pride thing. So, yeah, he did. You know, um, so they would regret they ever rejected him. Um, while he's struggling in Los Angeles, his father-in-law is booming. <laughs> I mean. Experiencing some of the biggest successes of his life. His father-in-law is his biggest rival. Remember, he's the head of the University right. of Atlanta, the graduate school for Morehouse and Spelman. This is the man who's seen as the head of his family because Dr. Foster's children barely know him. They they've only basically lived with their grandfather, right. Dr. Clement. Was he a doctor? It don't matter. I don't know. He was very successful. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't. OK, he won a seat in public office, a landmark victory that earned him a profile in The New York Times. And the irony shook Pershing. Yeah. This man had remained in the South, staying in Atlanta, had ridiculed. Dr. Foster for wanting to leave. And now Pershing was like taking scraps, taking urine samples. Urine He's a samples. surgeon going to people's homes and experiencing racism from his own people. An experienced surgeon. Yeah. Who had helped in the war. Yep. And here he's come back home and is collecting urine. Oh, that's insane. Um, a little for $7. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which was like. He got $2 extra if he brought the urine cup back. Is that what it was? I mean, wow. Yeah. Yep. Um, But he didn't let this opportunity go to waste. He made sure that every client or every uh, patient that he visited for this black health insurance uh, firm was converted into his patient. Mm -hmm. Because, again, he was an excellent doctor. And he had this down home bedside manner. Yeah. And then he dressed well and he made sure he he looked the part. He looked like a movie star. He was a doctor yeah. and he acted like he cared about you because he really did. Yeah. I so, think Los Angeles was perfect. For I him. know. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit about migrants and education. Contrary to nearly every assumption, the migrating black person, the, the population of um, black people who migrated were more educated than many of the resident white population around them. And definitely the blacks who were born in the north. It took a distinguishing steadfastness and self-discipline to make the trek and carve out a life from nearly nothing. Right. And because of that, like resilience, they had a little something extra if anthropologists are to be believed. But there is a stereotype that they brought down the yeah classes especially within black people of the north 
That actually factually is not true. Back to Pershing, Los Angeles, 1953. People from back home had long memories. And like we said, (laughs) them people from Monroe would visit him for his medical services. He'd suggest surgery and they go, what you trying to do? Buy a new fur coat for Alice? These comments stung him. So he decided to find success without the people from back home. He also finally sent for his family who hadn't um, who hadn't been with him. They hadn't been together since Austria. Okay, they had three girls now and they never lived as a family. A woman promised to rent them a place only to renege when she saw his color. He found an apartment near Dr. Beck, a far cry from the Atlanta mansion his family was coming from. But it was theirs. Alice and Pershing didn't know each other. Nowhere was this more evident than at the dinner table. She created these like new black dishes, like Betty Crocker recipes, casseroles. (laughs) And he was like, where's the hog moss? Where are the chitlins? Where are the greens? All this stuff is stupid. (laughs) His family was paying the price for separation. She would say the children don't like that. And he'd say, a child likes what his mom cooks him and you going to cook what I like. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Alice wouldn't enter society. They had um, like a social circle that you have to pay membership to be in. Um, which, you know, still exists today. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this... Jack and Jill, I think, is one of those. Yeah. And so this, like, Southern royal... Since she was coming from basically Black Southern royalty, she, her mother did buy her admission into the social circle, but she wouldn't enter society until they had a proper house. She knew the importance of starting on the right foot to progress them, you know? Um, Instead of buying a house, though, Dr. Foster bought a... Cadillac. Okay, they needed a house. He bought a shiny car because that was him. That was him. Um, 1955, he's finally allowed admittance at a local hospital. So that's the thing with the doctor. If your patient needs surgery, you need admittance rights at the hospital to be able to work on your patient. Yeah. The white doctors there would discuss on Monday morning all the fun they'd been having in Vegas. Now, you may remember in the last episode, I told you. Um, Dr. Foster likes to gamble, but he doesn't like have a problem. I'm so sorry. He does. <laughs> <laughs> he um he has a bit of an issue with the gambling. I mean, and when the white doctors would talk on Monday morning about all the fun they had in Vegas, it was a thorn in his side because he really wanted to go to Vegas. But black people weren't really allowed in, ba- in Vegas. Right. Um, this angered him. He heard, however, that there was a black man who had an in and could get you in. And so he called him up. That man made a reservation for Pershing and all his friends and their wives, a total of 13, 13 people yeah. at the Riviera Hotel. This was huge. Just thinking about it made Pershing, who went by Bob now again, feel like a member of the Rat Pack. That was like the scene he that wanted was to be in. That was made for that him. That was big deal. They shopped and prepared for weeks, buying the right clothes, the right hair pomade, no doubt. <laughs> The women, the wives had three different outfits to wear each day. They pulled up to the hotel with cases and cases and crates and trunks. Enough clothes to like clothe the entire state of California. Get them. But when they Mm -hmm. arrived, the Riv wouldn't let them in their room. They were humiliated standing in the middle of this beautiful lobby in front of everyone with a boatload of luggage Mm -hmm. stranded. A surgeon and all his surgeon friends. This is stupid. Um, and dressed to the nine. 
Persian called the black man who helped them get the reservation and that man helped them get another reservation at the Sands Hotel. The Sands Hotel didn't have enough room for them, but told them to stay somewhere else for one night. And the Sands Hotel would personally come get them and bring them back to the hotel. It kept its word. For that reason, um, Dr. Foster says he has a soft spot in his heart for the Sands Hotel for treating them with respect, Mm -hmm. for keeping their word. Dignity. He and his friends had the time of their lives. And Dr. Foster finally had stories to share with the other doctors back home on Monday morning. Mm -hmm. And a place to go and gamble that money. (laughs) Still in the 1950s, his strategy of going after everyone but the Monroe people was working. Even the hospitality staff at the hospital began visiting him. He didn't let anyone go by without saying, how you doing? You know, Mm -hmm. I saw you walking a little differently today. Tell me about it. And that was one of the things, too, like when he would see you in his office, he would light a cigarette. Am I remembering this right? Put up his feet and go. So tell me about it. Yeah. And so people were waiting hours to see him. To kick it with a great surgeon who was going to give you great um, service. Yeah, because he had a family practice. But he was also a therapist. Mm -hmm. To, and they would tell him all their stuff. I think my wife's seeing so-and-so. Seriously. <laughs> yes, everything. And bringing their kids like she ain't telling me what she doing. I think she pregnant. Ex- Make ex- her tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and he, would do, he was like a member of their family. Yeah. yeah. They really valued him. Yeah. Had this wonderful bedside manner. Yes. Which really made me miss that. We don't have that now. No. No. <laughs> so no. anyway. He had a way about him where he could talk to anyone about anything. And on top of that, he was an amazing doctor. He showed real concern staying by people's bed until there was a sign of them getting better. He was a sharp dresser, charismatic. People loved to be around him. And this made his clientele grow even more. Through word of mouth, he got one patient that even you, reader, may know. Ooh-ooh. Last name Charles, first name Ray. Hey, hey, Ray, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> so Ray Charles um, became one of his most devoted patients and friend. He was finally in a position to buy a home, which he did a relief to his in-laws who were like, what is taking so long? His wife then entered the social circles of Los Angeles and a third child was born. They named her Joy, which is a little sign of how they felt this moment in their lives. Right. Still in the 1950s, a woman calls hysterically in the middle of the night saying that her husband had cut his hand. It was Ray Charles and he had a tour to go on the week later, one week later. He was likely high. Remember, Ray had a heroin problem addiction and exhausted from riding for hours on end. He had smashed his hand on a glass table, severing an artery and a tendon. Pershing had to perform emergency surgery. Dr. Foster had to perform emergency surgery and he saved the hand, the hand of this famous piano player. That was an invaluable act as far as Ray Charles was concerned. Mm -hmm. He also followed Ray on tour, sitting in the front row for the hand. He had to make sure it didn't get affected. And I believed him. (laughs) Why wouldn't we? But you know, he liked being there. Right, right. But he was committed to his patience. Yes, he he wanted to make sure because he knew that Ray Charles was going to do what he wanted to do. And he wanted to make sure that when he did what he wanted to do, that his hand was recovering. Yeah, he liked touching on women and, you know, shaking gentlemen's hands. And, you know, but one thing about Ray is he he played that tour with one hand. Yeah, (laughs) that man was exceptional. Um, At one of their stops, 
a little blind boy hops on stage. The boy idolized Ray Charles, of course. And the little boy plays a few songs on his harmonica. Wonder who that is. Stevie Wonder. (laughs) What a time to be alive. Um, Ray Charles wrote extensively of this time in his book, his autobiography, making sure to clear any speculation that um, Dr. Foster was acquiring drugs for the artist. Clear my name. He praised the doctor, saying that it was um, Dr. Foster who saved his hand and his career. Ray Charles ended up having 12 children. Um, only three by his wife who later divorced him. However, that third, they named him Bob after Mm. Dr. Foster. 1962, Ray Charles wrote a little ditty. (laughs) He asked Dr. Foster, I'm writing this song. I want to put you in it. And Foster was like, okay. (laughs) Have you heard that song? Well, I called my Dr. Foster and when the girls Answer the phone. I got a funny feeling the way she said Dr. Foster had gone. She said he left with a lady patient about 24 hours ago. I added two and two, and here's what I got. I got I'll never see that girl no more. Well, I ain't seen her. I have my baby since that day. Bitter ain't seen her. I have my baby Since she went away If Dr. Foster has got her Then I know I'm through Because he's got medicine and money too I ain't seen hide my hair My baby since that day The song is called Hide Nor Hair After that song came out Dr. Foster, who's already very successful His business boomed More patients than he could handle filled his office. Patients would wait all day. They would make an appointment, go out, run errands, come back and still have to sit and wait. This is when Dr. Foster is at the height of his life. But it seems like when everything is going good, something bad has to happen. His brother, Madison, was back home um, still being a backwoods surgeon. But he himself needed surgery on his gallbladder. Dr. Foster did not trust the doctors back in the South, and he convinced Madison to drive to California or fly to California and get surgery at his hospital, at Dr. Foster's hospital. His brother dies after the gallbladder surgery in California. Dr. Foster never got over it, and his sister-in-law held a grudge. Um, The people in Monroe blamed Dr. Foster and the North. That was tough. For thinking you all that and look mm-hmm. and look what happened. Yeah. So that stays with him for the rest of his life. 1967, his great rival, his father-in-law is growing in power while Dr. Foster falls deeper into his gambling addiction. His wife is the perfect picture of a doctor's wife. He dresses her out of pride for himself. He'll go into the store, buy her three, four dresses and make her model them for him. Sitting hey. down. Now walk toward me. Now turn. I mean, honey. <laughs> yeah. He um, made sure that dress did her right. Right. Who wouldn't want nobody like that? He said the dress would come alive when she put it I on. I mean, who wouldn't want nobody that just know you that way and just like, yes, honey, that works for you. I mean, what? Right. <laughs> right. So his daughters also were in the middle of that social scene. They were attending cotillions. Um, and while they're having all this success, his father-in-law dies of a heart attack before a world tour he planned with his wife 
Alice's mom. Right, I think her name is Pearl. Down, right? Um, or I think he was still going to be the head of the oh, school, actually. Strip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But once he dies, they're forced out of that president's mansion in Atlanta. Yes. And Alice's mom has to come live with them in Los Angeles. The thing is, that mansion in Atlanta had been Alice's mom's home for her adult life. And now she is uprooted and stuck in Los Angeles with them. Unfortunately, soon Alice dies of cancer and her mother, Pearl, hates Pershing's guts. The feeling was was mutual. Yeah. And Pearl soon returns to the South. Dr. Foster is left alone for the first time in his life and desperately missing his wife. And he he missed her companionship. He turned deeper into his gambling addiction and it took him to Vegas for overnight shifts in large hotels that would comp his room and food, knowing that they would get tenfold in return. He'd win some. He'd lose some. He would lose other people's annual salaries in one night. He could mm-hmm. also win that much. Back home, he crashed his Cadillac, not because he was drunk, but because he had always been a bad driver. <laughs> this was not a good moment in Dr. Foster's life. He closed his private practice in favor of simplicity and began working as a staff doctor at a VA hospital. One day, a white female patient complained about one of his examinations. He had fled Jim Crow South and had managed never to cross a white woman, even getting a kiss from one at a dinner party. Now, working a job he didn't even need, he would face what he had escaped. The hospital moved him to an undesirable corner of the building. And his every move was scrutinized. His health began to fail him and he was forced to retire. It should be noted there was no misconduct on his record, according to the hospital. An old patient reminisces about his bedside manner years before he retired. And this is what she says. Another migrant named Melissa Briley did not fully grasp it until she had to go into surgery herself. She was in her mid-40s at the time, a social worker in Los Angeles who had gone to Spelman with Alice. She was anxious about going into the hospital. Robert did the surgery and the surgery went well, but later that night, her blood pressure shot out of control. She was on the verge of having a stroke, which could have killed her or left her paralyzed. The hospital tried to get her blood pressure down, but had no success. At midnight, the hospital called Robert to report the turn of events. He rushed over right away. He tried to lower her blood pressure, but he couldn't get it down either. The next morning, Briley awoke to see Robert in a chair by her bed. She was stunned to see him there. It was early winter, the quiet time of the morning, so early that the hospital hadn't brought the breakfast tray yet. He was in his street clothes and uncharacteristically wrinkled. He hadn't shaved, had bags under his eyes. What are you doing here this early? She asked him. He told her she had gone through a crisis the night before and that neither he nor the hospital could get her blood pressure down. What did you do? She asked. Well, I got to the point I couldn't do nothing but pray, he said. He had stayed by her hospital bed all night. He had sat upright in a chair in his street clothes. Any patient he lost, he took it personally and especially hard. He took it as a sign of his own failure. So he had fought back sleep watching over this patient and praying for her to live. By morning, her blood pressure had returned to a safe range. He made sure her vital signs were stable gave instructions to the nurse to call him immediately should there be any change. Then he left to see about the rest of his patients. He had stayed through the night, she said 40 years later, still almost in disbelief. I woke up and there he was. That I'll never forget as long as I live. 
At the end of his life, he continued to see patients at his home and he'd take their calls any time of night. If um, medicine was his wife, then gambling, though, was his mistress. He mm. was addicted to it. One heart attack after another forced him home and he slipped into despair. He suffered a massive stroke in the summer of 1997, fell into a coma and died August 6th. In the end, he was remembered as being a man who gave more than he got as a doctor. There were children named after him and families that would do anything for him. But his own family, his three girls, were distant from him. They had never known him like Melissa Briley, the patient who was reminiscing, yeah. or Ray Charles or any of the other people who used to wait all day in his office to see him. Yeah, they loved him. Madison was the self-described country cousin and one of Robert's biggest champions a living reminder of the South that Robert had put behind him. Madison thought about all the things Robert had been through in the South and out West, the rejections despite the triumphs and never feeling good enough. These things made him an exacting, infuriating, insecure perfectionist who left a mark on everyone he met. The people around him knew to smooth their tie, check their hem, reach a little higher, do a little more because Robert Foster demanded it of them. He made everybody crazy and better for the sky-high expectations he had of them for even the smallest things. If you bought him a melon, Madison said, you couldn't just buy a melon. You had to stop and think about that melon. That's how he was with everything. Madison thought back to how Robert had tried to get all of Monroe to come to Los Angeles. Bob would say, you want some Monroe? Plenty of Monroe out here. You can have Monroe in California. Then Madison remembered the trips he had made to Los Angeles. His feeling tentative and unsure, being from small town Louisiana as he was, but exhilarated to be out in California with his uncle. Come on, chief, Bob would say. Let's go to Beverly Hills and have breakfast on the veranda. Put your chain out. Put that gold chain out. You ain't on no college campus now. Put your chain out. That's why I gave you that chain. This was Robert's promised land. He walked around as if he had been born to it. He didn't have a care in the world, Madison remembered. All your problems were gone. Nothing could happen to you. You were with Uncle Bob. He lightened a room. He created another world for you. The man had a certain magic to him. Part two. George Swanson Starling. New York, 1945, April 15th. He didn't consider himself as part of a movement. He only saw, um, he only saw his out from a life of being less than a man, constantly in fear of death. And that's why George moved to the North. He tried to walk like he had seen it all, like everyone else did in Harlem. In a way, in a life or death sort of way, he had seen yeah. it all. George found a job right away working for the rail railroad <laughs> that is a difficult word. <laughs> that was because <laughs> this is because he moved right in in the heart of World War One uh, Two. This occupation exposed him to women and to alcohol and did little to help his already troubled marriage. He was a coach attendant being paid less than his white counterparts, but still making much more than he would have as a fruit picker back home. Race relations in the city were at their worst during the draft riots of 1863. During this time. The descendants of freed slaves in the 1820s, about 10,000 people were being um, lynched and beat and harassed, mostly by Irish immigrants. They set fire to an orphanage and dragged a black coachman out of his home, hanged him and then dragged his body through the streets, 
by his genitals. Those Irish immigrants resented the fact that they had to fight in a war that would only work to free competition for the jobs they were holding, as many of those slaves would become uh, free looking for work in the North. This violence moved black people farther and farther north of Manhattan, eventually to Harlem. By 1930, some 160,000 black people were living in Harlem. And some, um, what are those buildings called? Tournaments? Tenements. Tenements. Sorry, tenements. There were so many people that they had to sleep in shifts. As soon as a man woke up, someone was ready to take his spot in his bed. Authorities in the Harlem area tried measures similar to Jim Crow in order to stifle the growth of black residents. But in the end, that didn't work, not because uh, white people were more tolerant, but because they were more pragmatic. And mm. like we said, you could get more money from a white renter or even a, I'm sorry, a black renter or a black buyer because right. they have fewer options. They knew that they could extract a higher am- amount. And so uh, they wanted the money. Mm hmm. A choice was before them. Do they save the neighborhood from blacks insisting to rent and sell only to whites who were fleeing the area in droves anyway? Or would they break down and sell and rent to black people? They did the latter. The new north in Harlem. Seventh Avenue was like the Champs-Élysées. Men and women marched through the streets on Sunday afternoons in the best clothing they could get their hands on. Mm-hmm. Elks would have their um, capes or caps and batons, mm-hmm. um, fox stoles, ostrich feathers, big hats. They were the bell hands and like laundry ladies back home. And in the North, they could dress the way they saw themselves. Black luminaries lived in close proximity. Langston Hughes, Thurgood Marshall, W.E.B. Du Bois for a period, Paul Robinson, Duke Ellington, and even Richard Wright, who maybe felt he outgrew Chicago, were all living in the same area. It's crazy. George was nowhere near this like Sugar Hill gang but he saved up and found a brownstone in harlem to buy he put down a payment and sent for his wife inez who was still in the south he spent time at the savoy ballroom it had a marble staircase ella fitzgerald was the house vocalist greta garbo would be there and plenty of people from the south were there to run into it was like a family reunion every weekend at this club Um, Unlike many ballrooms, such as the Cotton Club, the Savoy always had a no discrimination policy and the clientele was 85 percent black. Um, Although sometimes it was even, but he loved being here. He loved really sinking into New York life. Yeah, he loved that life. So George finally sent for Inez and had plans for her to open a beauty shop because she remember she went to beauty school. Right. Mm -hmm. She became a nurse to spite him. She hates him. I mean, their relationship, though. (laughs) New city, but their marriage had the same old problems. Mm -hmm. After eight years of marriage, (laughs) Inez and George had a son. George was ecstatic. They named him Gerard. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. Yeah. Um, But he needed to return. George needed to return to the railroad to take care of this growing family. Yeah. On the railroad, he acted as a guide for Southerners entering the quote unquote promised land. They didn't tip him, but they'd pay him and maybe the fried chicken that they brought aboard. Um, He was already paid a low amount that was supposed to be supplemented with tips. So it was hard getting by. Um, One man boarded with a trunk so heavy that George fell when he tried to lift it. The man said it was full of clothes, but on the turbulent train ride, the locks flung open and sweet potatoes (laughs) flew everywhere. (laughs) The man goes, hey, hey, you got a flashlight? And George goes, I ain't got a flash night light that'll stay bright enough to, for you to pick up your clothes. <laughs> I need my flashlight. Sorry, man. 
The he other <laughs> brought a trunk full of potatoes. potatoes. The other 51 passengers were laughing and collecting themselves to, you know, collecting for themselves potatoes. some delicious potatoes. <laughs> Woo! Can you imagine? Nope. Uh, um, so George was in uh, New York for six years before the South caught up with him. An old acquaintance from his substitute teaching days had run into trouble. His name was Harry T. Moore. Oh, yeah. um, he was the NAACP's chief organizer in Florida, a risky volunteer position. He'd used that position to investigate lynchings and unequal pay. One case in particular spurred him to action. A young black boy sent a young white girl a Christmas card. The girl showed it to her father who gathered a posse, went and found the boy and made that boy's father watch while they tortured and drowned mm. him. Mm-hmm. Moore began acting even more fervently. Moore had only met George once um, and they shared that anger at the injustice faced by especially colored children right, right. at that time. July 16, 1949, Groveland, Florida, a 17 year old white woman accused four black men of raping her and um, attacking her husband. One of the men was already in police custody custody during the alleged incident, but it didn't matter. He was still considered a suspect. Authorities killed one suspect before he was even taken to jail. Um, tensions were so high that 350 residents of Groveland, Florida had to be taken to Orlando. Uh, the suspects were beat with rubber hoses. I'm sorry, black residents had to be taken to Orlando. The suspects were beat with rubber hoses in police custody. The man uh, chosen as the lawyer said he had no desire to handle the case. Two men were sentenced to death. And the one man that was already in police custody, he was given life in prison. So they had mercy on him, quote unquote. (laughs) Mercy. Right. Moore put pressure on the courts by sending letters to the governor, the FBI, the U.S. attorney general. A second trial was granted. The sheriff of Groveland, um, Sheriff McCall, decided to move the men for no explainable reason, handcuffed together to another prison. The sheriff loaded them into his personal car. He said that during the process, they attacked him and he was forced to shoot them dead. They were killed by the sheriff or seemingly while still handcuffed together. Criticism poured in from all over the country. Um, Anger only increased when it was found out that one of the men lived pretending to be dead just so the sheriff would stop shooting at him. Moore called for an investigation and removal of the sheriff in the background. The NAACP isn't looking too kindly on Moore. They're like sick of him for yeah. other reasons. Oh, and he was voted out. The sheriff and the you know lawmakers yeah. around him, the white people had no idea this was happening. Um, but because of it, Moore lost the backing of the NAACP. One night, a bomb went off under the bed where Moore and his wife slept. They both died. It was discovered that the Klan was behind the attack. However, they all said they were at a barbecue together the night that it happened. Of course, no one, no one was ever charged. Accountable. Mm-hmm. 1950s, still with George Swanson Starling. In 1954, him and his wife Inez had a girl. I don't know how these people that hate each other keep having kids. Stays married. Also, a relative in the South <laughs> dies, unfortunately, and her daughter comes to live with him. That oh, daughter. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he treats that girl, her name's Pat, like a daughter. Yeah. And she seems really sweet, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat comes to live with them and tells Inez that Jared, her son, does drugs when Inez is at work. Wait, Ine- he was 12. He was 12 doing, I believe, heroin. Yeah. Inez. 
for her, Jared is her entire world. And she is disgusted that anyone would ever say something bad about him. And Inez is miserable. She's like, yeah. But she Um, has her own level of issues. Yeah, exactly. So Inez, George's wife, forces Pat, the girl who, you know, just lost her whole family, forces her out of the house, not caring where she had to go. Um, She began living with a stranger. Fortunately, it was a church woman um, who let her live with her until she got on her feet all through her life. She stayed like a daughter to George. Right. And Jared grew up an addict. Um, George begins collecting money for bomb Southern cities as the civil rights movement takes off. He starts discreetly telling black passengers that they legally no longer have to move to the Jim Crow car. Um, They sent their 13 year old daughter to the South, George and Inez, to learn her roots, as many black families do. And what happened next is something they could not have expected. She came back pregnant. 13. This was the most difficult period for the family. I mean, well, sorry that was delayed, but I mean. No. (laughs) And George thinks of the girl in school that said she was pregnant with his baby once. He never told anyone this. The baby was stillborn and he was relieved. He thought of him and Inez before they were married. Yeah. They weren't that pure. And he thought all of this was something like karma. Yeah. So when his uh, daughter got pregnant, so did his mistress. George is like, <laughs> you know, he's insert mistress here. <laughs> George was living the life Listen, in New York. So I guess her 13 year old daughter and her husband's mistress is pre- are pregnant. The, these cr- these pregnancies crush Inez's spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, the son is born from the mistress and his name is Kenny. Kenny only ever knew his father, George, from afar. When George tried to get back at his father um, by marrying Inez all those years ago, it seems he was only getting back at himself. Inez eventually dies of cancer. From the moment her mother died giving birth to her, Inez was a woman with no champion, no consoler. She poured herself into Jared, her son, and he was an addict with everything that came with it. So she died miserably. Yeah. Um, George's kids returned to Florida, which felt like a slap in the face to him when they got when they became adults. His daughter moved to Eustis, where he came from, he of all like, places. Ow, why? Of course, it was a totally different environment at this time, but he just couldn't see how he had sacrificed so much to give them all the opportunities of the North. They grew up and went to the South. And they didn't, he didn't feel like they valued. Well, I think you said that because yeah. they didn't even do anything with school or anything. Right. And school was so important to him. Yeah. Um, his son moved to Miami where he fell deeper into drug activity, becoming a big time dealer with cars and wads of cash. Uh, they were both George's biggest disappointments, having never found their way. Victims of the migrants forced devotion to work instead of home life where they could have provided direction to their abandoned children. His daughter would die in a car accident before George passed away. George slipped into a coma after a bad fall one evening. His son flew from Miami to see him, but the sight of his father in that condition stuck with him and he died a few days later, also before George. George was the last of his nuclear family, um, which started out of spite. He never awoke from his coma and died in September of 1998. Part three, Ida Mae Gladney. Mm. Remember, she's our lady. Our lady. Our Chicago lady. Right. Chicago, October 1937. 
The train station felt busier than their entire hometown. They had to sleep upright and eat whatever they brought with them from home on their way north. Chicago was the first city Ida had ever seen, and it looked like heaven to her. But they were making their way to Milwaukee. Milwaukee, November 1937. Ida May's husband, George, began looking for a job. Jobs were hard to come by for black people, and many were turned away at the door, and some companies publicized the fact that they had never and never would hire Negroes. Ida May knew she was pregnant before she left for, uh, Mississippi. However, it was, poss- it was impossible to hide her situation now. She didn't trust doctors in the North. She was told that they strap you to the bed. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't want none of that. So it's her plan. True, so I don't want that either. <laughs> her plan was to deliver her baby in Mississippi at the hands of a midwife. Um, so she left the North as soon as she arrived. But by coming with her husband and making sure that they at least got settled with her sister and her sister's husband, she um, solidified the fact that George, her husband, could not leave her in the South as so many husbands had left their wives. So out about them. So that choice kept their family together mm-hmm. forever. Um, so Ida May had her baby in Mississippi as she had planned. But when she returned north, it was not to Milwaukee. Her husband had never found work and instead had moved to Chicago. They lived in a basement flat before moving to the top floor of a three flat building in Bronzeville. They didn't know it, but they were living in one of the most segregated cities in the nation, a position that Chicago would hold for decades that you and I definitely see now. Yep. Still today. Sunday, July 27th, 1919, a black boy named Eugene Williams was swimming. (laughs) Don't know where that came from. Was was swimming along on a raft in Lake Michigan when he crossed an invisible race line and was drowned by white boys who threw rocks at him. Mm. Blacks demanded that the white police officer on the scene arrest the boys. The police officer refused and instead arrested a black man based on a white Mm, man's accusation mm, at the scene. mm, This mm, began the worst race riot Chicago has ever seen. Two white men were killed walking through a black neighborhood. Two black men were killed walking through a white neighborhood. A white laundromat worker was killed. Another white peddler was killed. White people dragged a drug dragged drug. Okay. Uh, Black people off of public transportation and beat them. White gangs stormed the Black Belt and Bronzeville, setting homes on fire. The riots lasted for 13 days and killed 38 people, 23 black and 15 white. It didn't end until a state militia subdued it. Riots were to the north what lynchings were to the south. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. New name. Still with Ida May, 1938. Her days were spent with her youngest children as her husband, her very pious husband, was at work. And one of her older girls was even in school already. So she was lonely. Um, One day a woman visits bringing wine, a drink (laughs) Ida had never had. And Ida drank and was drunk when her husband got home. (laughs) She was drinking it like juice. Ida was drunk. She was so ashamed. Obviously, it was clear to her husband, George, that she needed more worldly knowledge. Mm. She needed to be less naive. And this is the thing. The flood of black Southerners threatened this fragile class system amongst black people. Right. Uh, Many people felt this way. They didn't know how to act. The list. You remember there's an actual list of things they should not do. Do you have that? How not to wear soiled clothes on public transportation. No scarves. Not hanging out, uh, hanging out of the windows, not wearing handkerchiefs or hanging wet clothes on front porches. 
This is stuff that they used to do in the South and they brought it to the North and people was like, what is this country nonsense? Don't have your events in the front yard. (laughs) It was a list. (laughs) That sounds fun. However, no black publications tried to publish a list of etiquette rules. (laughs) Um, Ida was grateful for these tips, honestly, but resolved never to change who she was deep inside. She kept her Southern drawl, refused to change her name. And chose to sing, sang Southern spirituals in church. Mm. So Ida Mae was going to stay Ida Mae. She might class it up a little for you. (laughs) Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Only if she wanted to. Back home, you could get killed for trying to vote or even more likely turned away from the polls. In this atmosphere, though, um, open members of the Klan rose to positions in Senate reinforcing white supremacy and denying the ban of even lynching. By the way, footnote. Um, lynching was only successfully made a federal crime last month, Alexis. Yeah. Yeah. Over six decades after Emmett Till. It's been presented more than once. Yeah. And failed repeatedly. Mm -hmm. However, in the North, blacks were being courted by white Democratic politicians who saw these new migrants as their opportunity. Ida voted for the first time and Roosevelt won his third term. Chicago, 1939. It was terribly difficult for her husband, George, to find work. He had even um, worked on the back of a truck that delivered ice. Many companies said that they would hire black workers. However, they couldn't because their white workers would storm out and they were likely telling the truth. As it turns out, Jim Crow in the South was affecting the entire economy of the nation because lower to middle class uh, whites couldn't ask for more money, knowing that there was this cheap labor out there that had no choice but to work for pennies. And black people were always going to be paid significantly less. So if you want to argue, we'll just give your job to a colored worker. Northern factory owners understood this and used black workers to break strike lines. Therefore, Jim Crow was hurting everybody's pockets. This also solidified a wide wealth division amongst the racists. White workers mostly took professional jobs so as to not compete with workers of color and black workers were forced to stay in menial and unskilled employment. George finally did find work at a Campbell soup plant. 1939, Ida Mae, black women were at the bottom of the economic hierarchy in the North. They were the last to be hired even after foreign immigrants. And so many had to resort to a slave market. Do you remember what that is? Yeah. It's similar to what you might find at like a Home Depot now where people are just waiting in line for work and you go and you bid on on jobs. So I feel like I had when I lived in Georgia, I was like 18, oh, 19 you did years this. old. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. And I did that. Mm-hmm. You would just go and kind of hang out in front of this and can I just say, place? you are not 60 years old. <laughs> no. <laughs> this I is was, a thing right now. I was 19. I was 18. And I you think. were picking strawberries? Yeah, we went into, I think it was, yeah, I think it was fruit and vegetables in this plant that we went to. And we just get dropped back off when the work is done. Yeah. And I would go out there several times a week. And mm-hmm. that would have, that's how I got my work yep. until I got a real job. Well, not a real job, but a study job. Mm-hmm. Sure. One day, Ida found out that a husband and his wife on the far north side of town was looking for a girl to replace Honey. their cleaning lady. <laughs> their cleaning lady was like out of town for a couple of weeks. And so Ida was like, I'd be happy to take your possession. It was when more she money. arrived, it was more money. It was, yeah, steady. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When she arrived, the husband 
the wife worked in the floor under the apartment and the husband was in bed when Ida arrived, which she thought was weird, but she just started about her business. Ida's really about minding her business. I like her. Yeah, me too. I like her a lot. Um, my business. Um, when the man came out of his room, he propositioned Ida May. So the man comes now, out of say, his. What you say now? I know it's shameful. Very so the man shameful. comes out of his room and he's like, uh, the other girl just stays in bed with me all day. Uh, and then I'll clean the apartment when she leaves. <laughs> yeah. What so the- you can do that while she out of town. No. Ida Mae stiffens up and said, I'm here to clean. She cleaned that one day and missed out on the rest of the week's pay, but she didn't care. She was both mad at the man and the girl who had recommended the job. She couldn't wrap her mind around how you could do something so degrading. Yeah. She did eventually settle into a job as a hospital aide with an excellent bedside manner at a local uh, facility. Ida being from Mississippi went to the funeral of Mamie Till's son. Mamie Till had sent her son to Mississippi and he came back um, disfigured, swollen. Emmett Till is his name. It could have been Ida's son laying in that casket with an eye hanging out of his socket. Mm. You want to hear about Cicero? You know about Cicero, right? Cicero yeah. is historic, world renowned for being crazy racist. Yep. Until eventually it succumbed to its own corruption and all the racist white people moved out and all the um, mostly Hispanic immigrants moved in. And so now, like, you know, it's just Cicero. But look up Cicero. It's crazy. Moving on. Yeah. 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 There's so much information Mm -hmm. out there. Um, Ida May, 1966, sees a man speaking and he's saying something good and she wants to get closer to him. But the crowd is crazy and the atmosphere feels vaguely dangerous. And Ida May is about good sense. So she decides I'm just going to listen a little bit and I'm going to go home with my baby. That man was Dr. Martin Luther King. Say it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was a celebrated and awarded leader of the, the civil rights movement. And unlike Jim Crow in the South, King was in the North now fighting a feeling. <laughs> it's so difficult to do. It was a tougher dragon to slay. In some ways, the North was even more violent than the South at this yeah. time. 1967, nearly 30 years since moving North, um, Ida and George felt like they still hadn't settled. They were renting. Um, they didn't own a home. And they found one eventually in South Shore, which is a delightful white neighborhood. (laughs) Within a year after they moved to the South Shore neighborhood, it went from mostly white to mostly black. She said white flight is what it's called. And they was just gone. The house was gone. Someone had actually moved their house and across the street was just land and like a (laughs) hole. Due to its beautiful architecture, Hyde Park was one of the rare neighborhoods that truly integrated. You might know that Barack and Michelle had a home there. Um, Whites didn't want to give up those homes and they were too heavy to just pick up and move. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so Ida participates in the neighborhood's regular meetings with local police and aldermen. And in these meetings, the old school migrants share their gripes with the local prostitutes and drug peddlers. Yeah. Um, during one of their meetings, a young senator joins them. This is rare because the only one who really cared was the alderman and he was getting like publicity for yeah. it. He came with a crew. Yeah, with media. Yeah. So this young senator shows up. The man's wife, uh, whose parents were migrants, grew up in Ida's South Shore neighborhood. Um, it was unusual for senators to participate And he especially was unusual because he came without cameras or media, like we said. 
Um, he gave them their his contact info and told them how he could help, how his office could help move things along if needed. He left and they thought, well, he's nice. Back to business. <laughs> that was Barack Obama. <laughs> and he would become 10 years later, the first black president of the United States. Right. Now we get to the end of Ida's story. Ida moved um, to the north with the lowest of expectations out of our three distinguished um, citizens. And she also had the least amount of opportunities of the three. In the end, though, her life was the happiest. And what's more, she outlasted all of them. She died peacefully in her sleep in September of 2004. She was in her room in her three flat home um, filled with her children and grandchildren who all loved her and kept close to her Mm -hmm. and kept her bedroom as it was when she was alive in memory of her. And because they didn't have the strength or the heart to disturb the room where their beloved Grammy Ida may slept. Yeah. So that's warmth of other suns. Can we take a break? Yep. My Dr. Foster And when the girls answered the phone I got a funny feeling The way she said Dr. Foster had gone She said he left with a lady patient About 24 hours ago I added two and two And here's what I got I got I'll never see that girl no more Well I ain't seen her Now have my baby since that day the lazy laughing south with blood on its mouth the sunny-faced south beast strong idiot brained the child-minded south scratching in the dead fire's ashes for a negro's bones cotton and the moon warmth earth warmth the sky the sun the stars the magnolia scented south beautiful like a woman Seductive as a dark-eyed whore, passionate, cruel, honey-lipped, syphilitic. That is the South, and I, who am black, would love her. But she spits in my face, and I, who am black, would give her many rare gifts. But she turns her back upon me, so now I seek the North, the cold-faced North. For she, they say, is a kinder mistress And in her house, my children may escape the spell of the South. The South by Langston Hughes. And we're back. Okay, we are. (laughs) What a story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What did you think of The Warmth of Other Suns? And would you recommend this book? Okay, I got to tell you, it was long. It was long. And I This episode or the book? (laughs) The book. (laughs) Or both. Okay, I'll say both. (laughs) But the book was long, but it has so much information in it. I learned so much in the telling of these stories. I was moved by the way she retold these personal stories and included events about factual moments that were occurring at that time. Mm -hmm. As I was listening, I could remember wondering, is she going to include this? Um, This kind of happened around that time. And then a few sentences later, she would bring it up. She would bring it up. So I I feel like it was very well written. 
and worth reading more than once. So you can just fully digest the stories and 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 hear the themes of their struggles as um, they're coping with the life they had in the South mm-hmm. and this new life in the West or North or East of where they were. So yeah. I really appreciated it. It was well written and I would definitely read it again. It made me wish I had an opportunity to learn more about my family's mm-hmm. history. Oh, that's my take. How about you? What's your final j- verdict and what do you recommend it? It can be hard to write a historical, a book of a his- historical nature and to provide enough context where a novice can pick it up and understand fully the the depth of it. I thought Isabel Wil- Wilkerson did an amazing job of giving you context along with the stories. Yep. Um, in the epilogue, she tells us the length she went through to verify yep. what was told to her. She even took a drive, that drive that Dr. Foster made from Louisiana to California. She did that with her parents. Yeah. She, and her mom was going, you know, I can, you can really see how he would be delirious here and imagine what he felt here. And uh, he, she really took her time with this book. She did just an excellent job. She really you don't did. have to know anything about American history, about black Americans to pick up this book and be fully educated on the great migration. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say I would definitely recommend this book. I loved it. Um, It's one of my favorite books that we've read. I can't think of one I love more. I love this. I love this. These stories will stay with me. Mm -hmm. Ida Mae reminds me so much of uh, some of the women in my family. Yeah. I just, I loved it. I love this book. Yeah. Um, Ida Mae was great. Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, I loved them all because they had so much, so much to give. They wanted so much. And I won't say that about Ida Mae because she was just kind of living her life. Yeah. And she her devotion was to her husband. She yeah. waited on him hand and foot. What were they married? 47 mm-hmm. years. Yeah. But the other guys, um, Dr. Foster and George um, Sterling, mm-hmm. they had these things they were trying to fulfill and and prove and prove yeah which made life a little difficult for them yeah whereas Ida Mae did not have that she didn't have a whole um jury that was always trying to say that her decisions were right or wrong right she was just so humble yeah and um she had such common sense yeah absolutely Absolutely. So in the end, I felt like as far as the purpose of our life is concerned, what matters in the end is how we um, what matters. Go ahead. Is it how we deal with the things that are in front of us? Because her approach to things allowed her to get through life without so much of a I need to prove something to somebody without bitterness. She didn't hold grudges. And and the happy moments she could taste even more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we could talk about this book forever. Yeah. And there's so much to it. I mean, we didn't hit all the. No. The when you read this book, there. it's going to open up. An, it's going to be a new book for you. Yeah. There's when so you, much to be told. Yeah. When so each individual stories. person reads it. And to sacrifice everything, come up north, running for your life, only for your children to be your d- biggest disappointment in life. To be on drugs, to not have your work ethic, Mm -hmm. to not even really know you. Yeah. 
And that's a story that a lot of migrants from other countries and from the South can relate to. You spending your life working and trying to make this foundation. And um, sometimes, you know, your children just, they get lost. Sometimes it really boils down to a lack of appreciation. Yeah. George worked so hard and Mm -hmm. he felt like, well, and then he also wasn't there to give his children. He was on the railroad. Because he was trying so hard to provide. One of the other things I liked, and I'll just keep this my last thing, but how she talked about immigrants from other countries and how their life kind of compared to the lives of these. The stories, yeah, the the themes are the same. Yes, exactly. But it tastes different because we were, Black people in America were still, are still never without that, Without that residual, that residual taste from slavery. And not only um, that, the white immigrants, Mm -hmm. they could change their name. They could drop something off and they'd be a whole drop a vowel and maybe you were a wasp. Who knows? Yep. It was just so easy for them, whereas we still had the the color of our skin. Yeah. One thing, Dr. Foster's grandson turned down Princeton and Harvard to attend Yale. And Dr. Foster was so proud, but at that time he was too sick to even go to his that uh, grandson's high proud. school graduation. But he was proud. It was like his life's work yep. had a, a culminated to this. And they had generations of college-bound yeah. students in their family, um, family members. So that, but they weren't the happiest. No, Ida was the happiest. That's right. His mom wanted him so much for him and to be a surgeon yeah. so she too would have really appreciated the success that her um yeah great grandson mm-hmm. oh yeah yep that was it so what are we reading next week kari uh then there were none by agatha christie yes <laughs> thank you for listening to let's decide yeah this part two Thanks version sticking it out of the warmth of other sons um by isabel wilkerson it was great. Thank you, guys. Um, we'll be here next week, Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know you stuck in the house, so just listen to this episode again. Right. You got the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go back to part one. Take that in. Tell the commuting. Throw this on. Mm-hmm. Go we'll to be part here two. For you. Mm-hmm. Play us. Again, we'll be here. <laughs> hey. Liz Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria and Kari Herrera. That's me. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review. Do it, do it now. For our show on Apple Podcasts. Along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. Because we love you, we too. We really love you guys. We do. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please tell a friend. Share it with a friend, please. <laughs> Start there. And then visit us at LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. Oh, it's great. And until next time, friends... Read something. something.